0: Astonishing legends would like to thank Simply Safe, Quip, The Great Courses Plus, Miller High Life, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: In the early and mid 1980s, Canadian investigative journalist Joe Fisher went on a journey to explore the wonders of mediumship and channeling, or the exercise of engaging with a gifted person who seems to have an ability to talk to, well, speak to the dead, but not just the dead, spirit guides. Spirit guides are a murky business, but the idea of them has been around in one form or another for centuries. Even Socrates alluded to one at his trial that often warned him if he was about to undertake something that would not be in his best interests. Getting past whether or not you believe in spirit guides, who many consider to potentially be guardian angels, where do you think they exist relative to our reality? And more importantly, if you find a medium that allows you to communicate with them, What would you ask them, and why? Joe Fisher made contact with his spirit guide and many more through a gifted medium he met in Toronto named Aviva. As sessions with her progressed, he concluded that he wanted to write a book about not only his, but others' experiences with Aviva and the spirit guides that seemed to speak through her. That journey took him down a long path into what he thought was the light, but in fact, may have been more akin to darkness. Tonight, we are joined by our good friend and returning guest, screen and television writer Richard Haddam, to discuss Joe Fisher's journey, as told in his frightening book, The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends, I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The nature of things is in the habit of concealing itself. Ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, as quoted from page 256 of the 2001 edition of Joe Fisher's book, The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, published by Paraview Press. Join us tonight along
2: with our special guest, Richard Haddam, for part one of our two-part series on author Joe Fisher's journey to discover what channeling really is. And we're Bach. Uh, that we are. We're Bach, like Johann Sebastian. Oh, sorry. Let me start that over again. And we're Bach.
1: Oh, that's that sounds kind of vintagey. Well, that's my channeling. Oh, the, that's your yeah, the channeling voice. That's coming. That's not me. That's the voice coming through. Oh, me. okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. But you do you remember that old guy that was on the? Um, He's on all the talk shows in the uh, in the nineties, I think, and he was kind of half close his eyes. And you know, I don't. You brought this up to me the other day, and I don't. I'm I not sure I crossed paths with this particular individual. It's not worth looking up, but okay. I just remember it from all the talk shows in the uh, the mid to late nineties, I think. Nice. Yeah. Well, folks, we are back, and tonight's show. I tell you what,
2: it's going to stick with you. I'm mm. actually going to have to read the book that's at the center of tonight's episode a few times before I can take it all in. And I've already ordered some other ones by Joe Fisher. I'm just that impressed with his writing
1: and his uh, research. Well, I I still have to work on getting through the book for the first pass, but what I've read is really <laughs> gripping, i got to say.
2: We don't have too much to announce tonight, other than we're still working on ceramic coffee mugs and some possible winter merch, uh, so just know that's going on. We also wanted to take a moment to thank you for supporting us, both on Patreon and with our sponsors. It's what keeps the show growing, and
1: we're very fortunate to have you guys, and don't take you for granted, so thank you.
2: All right, let's
1: dive into this show tonight. Wait, let me do that again. Okay. All right, let us dive into the show once again. Down the Mineshaft. Very nice. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, before we dive into our roundtable with Rich, which was a mm-hmm. lot of fun, I just want to set up a few things about tonight's show because as you'll hear us talk about, we, we've been wanting to do this for a long time. This particular book is particularly compelling to me. You'll hear that I started it several times, and I did. We mostly got (laughs) sidetracked. (laughs) We Um, both did, yeah. We we both did. But now that I have, like, powered through and read the whole thing, I am every bit as creeped out as I thought I would be by it.
1: Well, that's a good point, Scott, and something I think the listeners would find interesting about it, because if you back up, as you all know, we try to uh, pull some big scary rabbit out of the hat, out of the rabbit hole, out of the hat, into your ear holes, something spectacular and gripping and scary we want to scare the crap out of you for halloween because it's entertaining and it's also kind of fun uh to hear your feedback where you thought it was so scary maybe you couldn't even finish it and so this year i thought like well these creatures that uh show up wherever you are unexpectedly black-eyed kids reptilians black-eyed adults the djinn the succubi, the incubi, all these things are pretty scary because they come to visit you in your safe place, wherever that is, and you could do nothing about it. But Scott brought up siren call, and I thought, yeah, that the idea is kind of scary in that you could be involved with something that is so alluring in a way that you lose yourself to great detriment to everything. And when it comes to spirit mediumship, well, you and I have had experience with that so far already with Jim Hunt. Rebecca Fearing, who was more of a past life person, I'm not sure if she dealt with spirit guides, but we've both had readings now from people who deal with that and people who get information from other entities and sources you could say from the other side. Not that they're taking on different voices when you talk to them and and, and affecting weird behavior while you're in the reading. It's not that type of channeling per se. They're just getting the information and that makes it seem safer. One is more receptive, perhaps, for the information. So I wanted to ask you, Scott, because we haven't really fully discussed this between ourselves. What was it about this story, though, that really got its hooks, India, and unnerved you? I think that, and we only just barely get into this here tonight, and we'll get into it
2: more in part two, but I think that it's something that I've been wondering for quite some time, even with regard to our Sally House experience and, and any other time that the dr 60 it's gotten a lot of recordings since the Sally House. Mm-hmm. And and some even before uh, the Sally House, which I've always brought up, that Whispering one, which was completely, it was words, uh, that one, yeah. th- that I got in my own living room of my house in Los Angeles, which I am now getting ready to sell. Not for that reason, mm. but... Uh, <laughs> but, Why? you know, when I said, uh, what are you? It sounded like it was said, I can't tell. And yeah. so the thing with that that I always wondered and with the sally house and any time that somebody has a communication is what exactly are we talking to everyone knows this i was more skeptical uh, when we started out than i am now not that i'm completely given over to believing everything but just having now had a few personal experiences i my opinion has evolved but when we started out i was all about figuring out whether or not any communication was actually happening and i think this is something that skeptics and debunkers are robbing themselves of an experience when they can't get past that first step of, is this real or not? Because once you get past that, there's so many more questions to ask. Right. So for me, it's like, okay, nope, this is a communication. This is a communication. We're going to prove, and you're going to hear about it tonight. You can prove that this is information that is coming from some other source than the person relaying it in this case. So let's get past that. Now, are we just going to take everything at face value that's being said? Are we going to take it at face value, who it's coming from and what they want and what their desire is? We don't even know where they are or how their reality works with ours. So we don't know what their goals are or what they're trying to accomplish. And I think it's naive of us to think, like I said, if you get past accepting that the message is coming from some other intelligent source, it's naive to take it all at face value and grab the stranger's hand and get into the back of the van. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. It's not. You help me get this chair in my van. You know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. that's what I wonder. And I think the scary thing about Joe Fisher's book is that he wondered that, too, as time went on. And, and you'll see that unfold mm-hmm. as, as we discuss this book and, and the idea of what he uncovered with Rich.
1: Well, here's something that I have begun to start thinking about as we've covered these stories and more stories of mediumship and communication with intelligences from the other side, because, I mean, that's the thing, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought like, well, there's ghosts, right? And then there's stuff like the devil and and uh, those kinds of beings, but it's pretty cut and dry. There may be three or four, right? And now I've begun to wonder how many, the, the myriad of different types of intelligent things. And this is what we learned from the sludge entity is that you can think something is attacking somebody, what we, or what is usually called spirit oppression and draining their life force or wanting something from them or the people around them. But what a lot of energy workers believe and people who deal with things from the other side and mediumship Is that there are different levels of things like lower intelligence type creatures that they just draw energy and uh, they're not like the djinn. They're not super intelligent. They're a lower vibrational type of life being or form that has energy and shape and has will and attaches to people, but it's not the same. There's all kinds of species over there. So the more you hear about these things, and again, I like your point here that you don't have to buy into everything, but I like that you are more open to the considerations, yeah. if not so much the implications of that, but just put it on the table and consider it. Try to think about what is going on here and take it all in for some rational thought as much as you can. And when I do that, I start to wonder, do these other things on the other side that are Giving communications through a Ouija board, or through a medium, or somehow they're communicating with you, whispering in your ear perhaps. Do they know what they're talking about all the time? And are you always talking to the same thing, or are they trading off? With the case of Edgar Casey, as we will talk about a little bit tonight, it seems there were several things communicating with him that were for the good. And again, when you determine what's good or bad, I always look at the message itself. Even if it's from a horrible source, if it's positive, good, loving kind of information, you can take that at face value for what it is. But as we've heard with the jinn, sometimes they will tell you these things, like you should be more spiritual and believe in God, and they get you sucked in because they have an ulterior motive, which is not good at the end of it. But I do wonder, do these things even know? Because as we'll hear, sometimes they're, well, often they're wrong about something. Often they contradict themselves. Same with that story from the Ouija Stories episode, in that the board, or whatever it was communicating, seemed to contradict itself. And when you point that out, it gets mad. Right. Now, is that the same thing? Does it just not know? Or is that a ploy? Is, that, is it really just high-end social and emotional and intellectual manipulation? What do you think, Scott? What are your ideas about the types of information and the nature of these entities that are delivering it? Do you find now that you have more of an idea about what it is or just more questions? I have more of an idea, I think, based on the information in
2: this book. A lot of that I want to save for part two when we get to our conclusions. But I want people to keep an open mind. I think one thing that is really fascinating in this book And in this story is the idea of spirit guides being these types of guardian angels. And Fisher actually makes a reference to this. He makes a reference to catechesis on the angels that Pope John Paul II made in uh, July and August of 1986 over the course of six Mm -hmm. general audiences, which uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I actually printed it out here, but I'm just going to read one little sentence from it that I think should give everyone pause. And this is exactly what uh, the Pope at the time, John Mm -hmm. Paul II, said. Mm -hmm. In fact, this is from uh, July twenty third, 1986, and the heading for this was Creator of the Angels Who Are Free Beings. In fact, as Revelation clearly states, the world of the pure spirits appears divided into good angels and bad ones. The division is not the work of God's creation, but it is based on the freedom proper to the spiritual nature of each one of them. It is the result of choice, which for purely spiritual beings possesses an incomparably more radical character than that of man, and it is irreversible given the degree of intuitiveness and penetration of the good wherewith their intelligence is endowed. So, uh, this goes on, it gets a little more specific here, but the message here from the Pope at the time relates to good angels and bad angels. Right, right. And... Whether or not you believe in angels, you know, it's interesting in the course of Astonishing Legends, you and I have had encounters with, as you know, several psychics now, and I've actually been told there's a guardian angel present with me, and Hmm. I experienced, which I talked about in the Sally House series, in some of the aftermath of things that happened after we got back home, I experienced something that felt like I felt like I felt that
1: presence specifically with a potential car accident that seemed to be averted. Quick question here, do you think it's a non-human or never human never was human type of entity or do you think it's a past relative or a former human type spirit guide i used to think the latter
2: but now i think the former i believe yeah that it was non-human
1: um interesting
2: and yeah. never human whatever it was that seemed to be standing between me and the, I'll just call it the evil eye of whatever we encountered in Kansas, because it definitely felt very much like I was under attack for a long time, but I also had something protecting me. right? And it it feels like that's dissipated now. I feel safe now. Oh, that's also interesting. Yeah. And it did pass, but it took several, several months for that feeling to go away. Um, Well,
1: let's see if I can reverse that uh, (laughs) trip to another place that... (laughs) <laughs> Man, I'll chills tell you, you to the bone.
2: Yeah, I'll tell. There's so much more to that story, <laughs> and I think people. Oh, I heard that recording. It wasn't scary. It's not the recording. The recording is a tenth of everything that happened. Right, and, right. And I think it's hard to convey that. And that's what they always say about personal experiences. It's like you just.
1: Had to be there. That's also what I tell people when they say that. What's the big deal? It's like, it's not about the recording. And so, you know, when we do get criticism uh, about why did you pump that up and you jumped the shark and like that was such a build up to nothing and I don't get it. The series and the episodes were, were not about the sound itself. It's about the entire experience of which the sound was, you could say that was the trigger or that was the cap that made the gun go off. It was Just a part of it, and the rest of it is a feeling. Again, from what I've read of the book so far, what's building and what's unknown and maybe unknowable by the characters in the book, and certainly other people too who've gone down this path of trying to find answers, is that you don't know who to trust. That's the same thing with the Ouija board. This is the the big theme for this discussion. How can you trust what you're experiencing and the information you're getting? Because it's not all horrible and a lot of it's benign, but is it leading you somewhere? And so I think about the experience and I look back to Edgar Casey when he was a young boy and he had reading and learning difficulties and the angel appears to him. It's this beautiful woman and shrouded with white light, all the classic tropes. And she tells him, you will no longer have any problems with learning. Now go forth and have fun, kid. And that's what happens. All of his problems go away. And then he could lay his head on a book and soak up all the information, which is a skill I would love to be able to have. But uh, that gift has not been bestowed upon me. But man, it would be so handy for us, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Be perfect for us. (laughs) But my point is that he didn't doubt like, oh, I don't know. She I don't get this good feeling from her. Is she lying to me? What she want? What does she want with me? I'm just a kid when you experience it firsthand. And that's maybe the problem with people getting their information through mediums who they themselves, the mediums may not know or have a feeling if this is right or accurate. They're just the conduit. They're just, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just relaying the information. Take it up with uh, the person on the other side, but you can't do that. And so again, going back to the patterns that we see and put together, it's like what we talked about, the gin or black-eyed kids, or these things that are somehow not, it's that uncanny valley. It's like, they look human, there's something almost 95% right there, and it's not total, because demonologists will tell you that something that is not good of the dark side, they can try to impersonate a human and get almost there, but they can't do it completely. That's part of the rules. They can't completely fool you, and it's what you brought up with our friend, and the Bubby voice, and that the doppelganger had the different haircut. The bangs were not there. It's close, but you can't be exact because that breaks the rules, because you can be totally fooled. And this is something that you always notice, is that most of the people that get these feelings, and we talked about this quite a bit now, and even in the last series, with the documentary The Nightmare about the mother who had passed away and something crawling into bed, with this woman who was the daughter, and she knew it was supposed to be the mom trying to comfort her, didn't even look at her, didn't turn around, and she knew, like, that's not her, that's, this is something, I mean, it's trying to be nice, and maybe it is benign, but it's not right, it's not totally right. In the Ouija stories, Michelle and Angelique had the story of their mother, remember Mm -hmm having the dream, which I love that story because it it wasn't even about the Ouija board. She just went beeline right downstairs, knew something was wrong about that. But in the dream, it's like the grandmother and the other relatives like, come with us. And she's like, no, that's not you. You're not real. Yeah. It's just a dream. But even in the dream, something is not right. So I I offer this as maybe a, a bit of comfort for people who have had an experience like this, and they don't know what to trust. I think it's harder when you're going through somebody else, when you, but when you have an experience in person with something, I think deep down you know. And you might be frightened, as the, the angels were, remember, as they appeared at Jesus' birth and to the shepherds, and they say, don't be frightened, you know, we are angels of the Lord. It's a mind-blowing experience, and so you might be scared, but I think deep down you'll know if it's good or bad, or maybe it's a little bit of both. I couldn't agree more. Well, on that note,
2: let's get over to our discussion with Rich. Well, folks, we are back in Blankets for Tiana East and West with Mr. Rich Adam. And it's interesting how this story came to us. We're going to be discussing a book called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts published by Pearview Press in 2001, which is actually a second edition of a book that was originally just called Hungry Ghosts that came out for uh, Canada and the UK. That was published in 1990, the first time, by Grafton. And for those of you who've been with us a long time, you may remember us telling a story several years ago about Rich surprising Forrest and I at our respective homes with these big gift baskets uh, that mysteriously appeared, no less. And uh, there was, I mean, he wasn't even anywhere to be seen, and they were filled (laughs) with wonderful books we were so excited about it and we wanted to do stories on some of them and that was like what rich 3 4 years ago it
0: feels like 4 years ago but i think it was more like well no maybe i don't i don't maybe it was 3 years ago it was christmas time so it was yeah yeah it, was, yeah, maybe it, was, maybe it was, had to be four. time this year has just you know multiplied into an endless corridor of horror but That being said- Telephoto compression. Exactly. So I jammed in all these books and then some of them were like, oh, we should do an episode. Yes. And then we talked about this one And then Scott read the first 100 pages like six times. What was that?
2: I read it six times. And then Forrest and I were like, this Patterson-Gimlin film's turned into seven parts. And it's like, okay, we're going to shelf this for a minute. And we (laughs) just kept almost doing it. And then uh, finally, I read it. And the other thing that was interesting about The Basket, Rich, is uh, that you pointed out tonight is it had another book in it that we did want to talk about uh, on some other future episode called The Vertical Plane. Oh, yeah. which has skyrocketed in value since you gave us these books, just these worn out paperbacks.
0: I got Vertical Plane by Ken Webster like 20 years ago, and I found a copy yeah. and there were a handful of copies that you could still get on, you know, but they were like 20 bucks or something. I mean, maybe I paid as much as 50 for a signed one. And then the other day I went online and they're selling for like two thousand dollars. And I gave each of you a copy of this book. I want you to be thankful. <laughs> I am I super thankful. I just gave you two thousand dollars. It's pretty amazing, and it's sitting right
2: here behind me. And my <laughs> copy looks better than the ones on eBay that are going for that much. So thank you very much.
0: My my, my generosity is my only fault. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, if it makes you feel any better, I, I have traded mine for some Funko Titans characters. <laughs> Keeping it in the rich Haddam family. That
0: is the only acceptable trade. Okay, then.
2: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm the Gunslinger. And now back to the show. Again. Since we've been introducing it now for 15 minutes, let's talk a little bit about this book. Honestly, and I think it's this is a little bit of gallows humor on my part, because this book scared me to death. And I also want to say that when you look at our um body of work, I think about some books that really stand out, like Dead Mountain by Donnie Icar and Yeti by Dr. Daniel Taylor. Also, um, even I really enjoyed the ghost studies by Brandon Mazzulo and books like that that are really they seem to have these really poignant points of view and are really well researched and fascinating. This one is right there. But it's in its own lane, too. It's in its own lane. And Rich and I were talking a little bit while we were getting set up tonight about, I don't know, there's some parallels here between what Joe Fisher has been through. And some of the things that John Keel went through, I think, yeah. which is pretty fascinating.
0: Well, you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Richard Haddam book club that has been just tearing yes. up Twitter like yes. a wildfire. Yes. This is a book that I had recommended, but I've been recommending it for, it's, I don't know, it's maybe 15 years. I definitely I read it after Mothman came out, but it's the only book about the paranormal, the only true story of the paranormal. That ever scared me as much as Mothman and that I've ever considered, like, is there any way to turn this into something, a movie, a TV show? Because it's written from the author's point of view, Joe Fisher, and it involves him investigating a very strange story that he becomes very personally involved in. And it just, it makes for very compelling reading. I couldn't agree more. I, I
2: had a hard time putting it down, and I was reading it quickly so that we could talk about it. And a lot of times that can turn into a chore, but I was, I, it was actually in, quite enjoyable, especially after the long
0: chain of work that uh, we've been doing on the show. So I'm a genius, and you're I'm just your best friend, you love me. <laughs> oh, the book again,
2: Siren Call, of The Hungry Ghost, it came out originally, it was called Hungry Ghosts, right, Rich? The first time it was published was in
0: 1990 or 90? Yeah, 90. I happen to have a first edition signed by Joe Fisher, so I don't want to brag or anything, but you know, that's just how I roll. Yeah. But I didn't know I didn't read the original. I read the reprint by a Perdue Press, so yeah, the one that came out about 10 years later. Well, what was different between the two? The main one is that there's a little bit of an epilogue. So it's sort of a 10 years later cures a little more information, which was really cool. And and the reason I loved it and sort of loved it in the same way that I love Mothman prophecies is that It's told in the first person from the investigator's point of view, and two things happen. One is they do all the logical things, like every single thing you think of, like, well, why don't you do that? Oh, okay. In the very next paragraph, he does it. Okay, great. So that's great. That's very satisfying. You're like, okay, so this person's thinking like me. So you get caught up in the first person narrative. And the second thing is they become central to their own story. They enter as a reporter and very soon, very, and in this book, like immediately kind of become very involved and very central in the drama itself. And so now you're following a very personal story. So it's riveting.
1: You may not know the answer to this. Your wife might, because she has a journalism background, but aren't you supposed to not do that? Get yourself involved in the story to be the central focus where you're playing a part in it? you're supposed to be more objective about it, right?
0: You bring up a great point. And he had, you know, Joe had written other books before this that dealt with paranormal subjects. He'd actually just written a book about reincarnation. He had worked with Joel Witten, a member of the Toronto um, SPR and an investigator into the metaphysical. But when it does start to involve you, you kind of have to. Then, Then it turns into Hunter Thompson. Then it turns into John Krakauer, where you're like, Okay, you know, now we're in it. And then as long as they're upfront about that, I'm all for it. I'm like, great, tell me your story, tell me your point of view, because the notion of a completely objective point of view, we know is always in question. So just admit you're telling your story and your point of view on something and then uh, go from there.
2: And speaking of which, Joe, just a little bit of background. He was actually born in England, but he did move to Canada in 1971 and lived there, although he maintained dual citizenship. But to your point and yours, Forrest, he was an investigative journalist. And when you look him up online, that's what you find out, the journalist, Joe Fisher. But in addition to that, he did write books. And the one that uh, Richard just mentioned is called The Case for Reincarnation. And when you think about these paranormal books and what level they're perceived at, the case for reincarnation, the preface is by the Dalai Lama. So <laughs> you're on a different level there if you've got him doing the preface for your reincarnation book. I think it's pretty impressive. Well, I, I think one of the first things we should do is should tell our listeners a little bit about what channeling is, because you need to understand channeling before you can understand what this book is about, and right. a lot of people, of course, that are regular listeners are going to know what that is. But I'm going to read a definition here from the American Heritage Dictionary: the act or practice of serving as a medium through which a spirit guide purportedly communicates with living persons. Right. And then the Random House definition says, "Professedly entering a meditative or trance-like state to convey messages from a spiritual guide." And I love that uh, both of these definitions mention spirit or spiritual guide, which is really the crux of what this book is about, right, Rich?
0: Right. And and for me, like the way I separated from like a medium, like going to someone who's like, yeah, if you come to me, I will try to contact your mom who just died or your grandma or whoever, your dead relatives. There is a slight difference. And as far as I could tell, and I think the definitions back it up, is that through a channeler, you're getting what is called a spirit guide. So it might not be someone you're related to. It is someone you are theoretically spiritually related to who has been assigned to sort of look out for you. It's almost like a guardian angel, or at least that's the feeling. But these are spirits. These are people who have been alive and then they've died. And and you don't know that you're related to them. Like they'll say things like, oh, yeah, back in, you know, In the 1800s, you and I were brothers, or we were married, or I was your father, and and we've orbited each other, our souls have, for thousands of years. And so that's one thing. Now, then there's like the ascended masters that are like, we are spirits who have never been incarnate, and we are the real wise ones, and we're coming through. So it's a little bit different than just going to a medium and talking to a dead relative of yours. And I think the other distinction is the trance. Usually a medium, and I've gone to mediums, they're conscious and awake when they're talking to you. They're like, okay, I see an old man. Okay, he's got gray hair and a cane. Is it your dad? Okay, it's your dad. With channeling, it's not like that. Channeling, the person goes unconscious, either through hypnosis or through their own method, and they're out. And then they start talking another voice.
1: I think that's a good distinction there where the medium is getting information is empathetic, maybe some feelings, images, all those earthly sensations, but also with a channeler though, you're kind of letting yourself be taken over. And and we've seen these uh, on TV, certainly, people will sometimes speak in a different voice that is supposedly of the person that they're channeling or the entity that they're channeling. Yeah, sometimes I've seen it as, you say, a, a higher intelligence that has never known a body, and then there are just past people who speak through them. But Yeah, you'll see them often uh, using their own body as the vessel,
0: the medium. And they'll totally, their face changes, their voice changes. They're sometimes speaking in languages that they don't know. And then after an hour or two or three hours, the session ends. Sometimes the human hypnotist will then slowly bring the channeler out of their trance And then they remember nothing. They're like, so what happened? And everyone's like, oh my God, let me tell you, my spirit guide came through. It was this kind of person from this century. And and the channeler has literally no idea. Culturally, channeling tends to be a little bit more plugged into what you might call the new age movement. And it is for seekers. It's for people who don't just want to talk to their dead uncle they want universal knowledge. They want to talk to God. If you want, we can sort of describe what Joe walked into. Yeah, let's do it. He had just written this book, uh, "The Case for Reincarnation," and so it had been well received, and he's in Toronto, and you know, he's got various connections within the New Age and the spiritualism world. And someone calls him up and says, "Hey, you might be interested in this. There's this woman, Aviva Newman, lives in Toronto, you know, just a few miles away. And every Friday night, a whole group of us go up, a guy named Roger puts her in a trance and spirit guides come out. And when you start showing up, they notice you and then your guide can start to find you. And through her main spirit sort of control person, a guy named Russell, who lived in England, Yorkshire kind of area in the 1800s, First, he starts talking to you, but then after a while, your spirit guide might come through. And so people are like, oh my God, let's do it. So Joe Fisher's like, well, I've already written a book about the paranormal, but this sounds cool. So I'm an investigative journalist and I do this kind of work. Let me go check it out. And so that Friday night, he goes to the condo in downtown Toronto, and pretty quickly, things start to happen for him, right?
2: Yeah, it's really strange. And and Rich, I think Russell is technically Aviva, the medium's guide. Aviva's spirit guide. I'll sort of take you through it
0: chronologically. Okay, so a yeah. little background. Aviva Newman is this woman who is friends with a guy named Roger Belancourt, right? right? This is all in Toronto. This is all in the 1980s. Roger Belancourt is a guy who's a friend of Aviva's, but he's also a hypnotherapist, and he is very interested in the paranormal. He's very interested in channeling and contacting you know, the wisdom of the ethers. Aviva, his friend, becomes very ill. She basically gets leukemia, a specific kind of leukemia. And it's causing her pain. So as a hypnotherapist, he says, let me come in and use hypnotism to reduce your pain. And so he does. But then he says, you know what? Can I try a second thing? Can I actually try to contact some spirits while you're in a hypnotic state, a hypnotic trance, and see if I can't get them to help you heal yourself. And she's like, yeah, I've just been given a really shit diagnosis. Do whatever you can. And by the way, Aviva's Australian. Like in my mind, it's Tony Collette because <laughs> I'm already casting the movie that I'm writing. Right, yeah. But like, you know, she's really down to earth. She ain't afraid of no ghosts. She's smoking and drinking and she got the leukemia and she's like, do whatever you want.
2: To go further, she's a laboratory technician, and and he points out Joe Fisher points out that her library shelves are filled with books on Marxism and uh, Lenin. and you know that's yeah. where her head's at. It's not into this stuff at all.
0: She's a total atheist, but she's like, look, you do whatever you want to do, great. You let me know. So he puts her in the trance, and and by the way, these hypnotic sessions have been working in terms of reducing her pain. So now he goes a step further and is trying to call in spirits to help with her disease, like maybe they can even cure the disease. And this personality emerges. And it's this guy named Russell Parnick, who apparently lived in England in the 1800s, I believe.
2: Yeah, I think that's right.
0: And he comes through, he's got an accent, and he starts communicating. And it doesn't seem like Aviva, like he's speaking in a way and using words and He's a sort of a fully formed personality that emerges.
2: Very masculine and pronounced English accent. No trace of her Australian accent and no trace of the original pitch of her voice
0: either. Right. Which is very common. Apparently, again, with channelers, their face will change. Like they will look like a different person as different personalities inhabit them and their facial muscles mimic that of the discarnate entity, if you will. So as this starts to happen, Roger realizes, oh, you're actually a channeler, like you've actually got sort of a real facility for this. And it's good because we can use that to bring in other spirits to actually affect various parts of your body to not only alleviate pain, but maybe reduce your symptoms and reverse the course of the disease. And they actually had some luck with this actually would do things and the spirits would say, okay, you're going to find that her white blood cell count has gone down. And on her next doctor's appointment, sure enough- That bore out. Bit by bit, other people are brought in. Hey, you know, you should see this. A woman named Helen Fielding comes in, who's also a friend of Aviva's, who just starts taking notes. She's just like, you know what? When this Russell guy shows up, I'm going to write down everything he says. Then when Aviva wakes up, I'm going to show her. And typically her reaction was, what is this bullshit? <laughs> so, it's a typical freezing cold Toronto night. Joe Fisher goes to one of these one of approximately six billion condos that are in downtown Toronto, because I know now because <laughs> I'm super well traveled, goes to her home, and there's a whole group of people, and this has been going on for a while now. and it's a tradition it's a Friday night thing. It's a session they call it. And he sits down on the floor and he's a reporter and he's like, Okay, what's going on? So he watches Roger take Aviva into her trance. And I guess they sort of call it it's like going down the mine shaft, right? Yes. Descending, descending, descending into this hypnotic state. You know
2: what when I read about this, you know what it reminded me of for those of you that have seen get out. It reminded me. Did you see Get Out, Rich? Did you see that?
0: I literally saw it for the second time like three nights ago. Yes. Okay. Right. Remember when she's
2: she's doing that teacup thing and he falls down into the chair? It's just amazing visual. But that's what this sounds like. Like,
0: Yeah. It's the sunken place.
2: The sunken place, exactly. And then the other thing they do in that uh, in the book is at some point in it, and I went back to find it. A lot of times I have a Kindle copy, and I can just search for things while we're talking. This is a paper copy so I can't do that, but like there's some point in here where they talk about that physically and it might be later in the book, part of, you know, more of stuff we'll talk about in part 2, but where there's an actual region in the brain that they're trying to reach that's an open gateway for this kind of communication. So you're you're going literally figuratively
0: and literally down into your brain. Right. There's a physical dynamic to it. It has not been studied and mapped and charted, but Obviously, it's happening with a human being. So there's a physical aspect to it. So he's watching this and Russell shows up and he's talking in his voice. And, and Joe is observing this. He's doing his reporter job. And he's noticing that, again, her face changes, her diction changes, the energy of her voice changes. This is a fairly slight woman who is currently battling a terminal disease and dominating the room. This personality that's coming through her is like doing a one-man show. And it's going on, but really, really quickly, Joe is informed that he has a spirit guide. And and the spirit guide doesn't come through in the first person through the body of Aviva yet. It's just Russell saying, yes, this person is here, and it is your spirit guide, and it's a woman, and her name is Philippa, and she is from Greece. And Joe is like, oh. Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently, this was your lover from the 1720s and 30s. You guys were lovers in Greece. Now, okay, Joe's in his 30s. He's been to Greece. He has seen the women. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) He's like, okay, (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who wouldn't be right? He's like, all right. And and the, the notion that these guides are they're sort of trying to get in touch with you to help you. It's like, we're, we're your invisible helper. And, and again, he's a reporter. So he's like, all right, I'll follow this as far as you want to take it. Now he keeps going back every Friday night and he keeps hearing more and more. And now the dynamic is basically like your, your friend in high school who says, hey, you know that girl in algebra? She really likes you. And you know what she said to me? You're hooked. You're listening. You're like, what? Yeah. What else did she yeah. say? What else? Okay, so Russell is basically the friend going, look, this is Philippa chick. She is obsessed with you.
2: Right, now it's at this point, I want to point something out for people trying to track everything here. Keep in mind that Russell is the guide of Viva. So the information about Philippa is being relayed through Russell who is being channeled by Aviva. And one of the things that the book does, and we're probably going to be doing tonight and in part two, is talking about Russell like he's sitting in the room. Right. But he's not sitting
0: in the room. He's coming down through a channel. Right. So So picture Tony Collette (laughs) talking like an Englishman about a Greek woman. Okay. And if you you do that, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. You got it.
2: Exactly. But the other thing is that initially... Philippa can't make direct contact through Aviva. So right. Russell's having to say what Philippa is saying and doing and how Philippa's reacting, right, Rich? There's there's some point in the book, I feel like, that Philippa is technically talking, but it I wasn't clear to me where that transition was because the Greek is recorded and right. that sort of thing.
0: She does yeah. eventually come through. It takes right. a couple of months. But Joe Joe continues to show up to these sessions. Because he's interested, and even just hearing about this woman is interesting to him. Now, something you should know about Joe's life at this point is that he is living with a woman named Rachel. I mean, he's involved in a romantic relationship, but it's not going great. It's been going on for a while, but it's not thriving. There is stress in the relationship. But now there is this apparently ghost woman who does not present any problems, I don't think it's that hard to understand that if you're in like a not great relationship, but your imagination is engaged with this sort of mysterious relationship. And this is an analogy that I do not think is far off. If you're in a relationship that's not good, and then you go on a dating site and you're just communicating online with someone who you have never met, whose voice you have not heard, but you're sending messages back and forth. And the person that you're sending messages back and forth with really understands your problems and already loves you because you've already been lovers in a past life, you might find that you're spending more time online than usual.
2: Well, it's an emotional affair is what it is. It's an affair in a lot of ways. I think some people would consider it almost worse than the physical affair because yeah. that it's, you're really getting detached from. And that's an important component of the book and Joe's journey is understanding How already at the outset, this contact is drawing him away
0: from the living, the living people in his life. And he's not the only one. Everyone in this room every Friday night is being put in touch with someone that they believe they have had an actual human physical relationship with in a life they don't remember. And it may have happened more than once every person has a different guide and they're not all, you know, sexually alluring like this one was. And Joe was very upfront in the book. He's like, "I became really really interested in this in this Greek ghost woman." But other people have a more a more sibling relationship with their guide or an avuncular relationship, a parental relationship, but it's a compelling relationship because A the person is looking for a compelling relationship and B the context is I have known you forever. I know more about you than anyone in your physical life because we've known each other and have been circling each other through multiple lifetimes, throughout hundreds, maybe thousands of years. So even though you don't consciously remember it, the minute you die, you're going to see me and it's going to be a reunion you can't believe. So if your analogy is computer dating, if your analogy is theater, whatever it is, people were drawn in and they showed up every Friday night really wanting to hear from their spirit guides, and really wanting that moment of intimate communication that Aviva's body was facilitating.
2: Yeah, and the the interesting thing about these spirit guides, again, and the, there's some parameters to these guides, and a lot of people were led to believe that they had spent some time with their guide, but in some cases, as you said also earlier, Rich, some of the guides were disincarnate, meaning they were never on the earth. They were never, they've been disincarnate their whole existence. Right. They never came down to slum around with us, but they're, <laughs> and those are, like you said, some of those are the ascended masters maybe, or there's once so they're in all different levels of
0: experience. Yeah. And it's hard to tell w- what is more seductive.
2: Yeah. And the other tricky thing about this, and I, you know, I thought a lot about Forrest and his thing about the rules is, the rules really come into this story a lot because there's a lot of rules here that we don't know what they are, but they're clearly there.
0: Well, you're, well, you're talking about Forrest's rules, right?
2: Yeah, I'm talking about forest rules of the paranormal and the whole thing about, you know, and we've been you know talking about it off and on for years, but like there are things that these guides can and can't do. And
0: it's weird because there are certain large bits of the spirit guide's talk is transcribed in the book not a lot, yes. but but enough to make it sound like you're just talking to someone. And they're just saying, oh, right. yes, here was what I was, lived on the farm and it rained all the time. Oh, let me tell you, it was a pain in the ass and, and And it took two hours to get a, to the next town to do a thing. And you really get sort of drawn into this specific personality to the degree that I don't think anyone, I mean, again, unless they thought they were dealing with someone who had never lived, the ones who said they had lived sounded like real people, spoke of their lives like real people. And so it, it added to the feeling of intimacy and the feeling of this is a unique individual who walked upon our earth. And that's important to keep in mind for what happens down the line. Now, when Philippa finally comes through, what we're saying now is that Aviva, our Australian woman, Tony Collette, <laughs> suddenly is no longer talking like a British man, but now he's speaking like a Greek woman. See how I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, you're a real you deal with
0: <laughs> This is what I'm thinking. I'm like, this has to be ridiculous. If you're an adult <laughs> human being sitting in a room and there's a woman with her eyes closed going, hello, how are you? Oh, I know. Oh, my joke. I am your lover from Greece. I'm like, this is totally, how could anyone buy this? But apparently they're like, no, that was the easiest part to buy. These are actual voices coming out. And they they recorded these voices, these tapes exist. And people listen to them and we're not like, yeah, that sounds like someone doing a really imitation of a British guy or a Greek woman. They're like, oh yeah, no, that sounds like somebody from my village.
2: To that point, Rich, I'm glad you brought that up because I think this is really significant. And if this is something we're gonna to touch on right here, it's like in addition to you know the pitch change and the dialect, it becomes regional dialect and super specific regional dialect. So in the case of Philippa, for example, and this is something we find out down the road, but he's able to check some of the speech that comes through and find out that based on the region that she said she lived in, which was close to Turkey, that it was a mixture of Greek and Turkish, and then other really small regional dialects that some of the locals couldn't even understand but knew was real language. And that's coming through Aviva, who reads Karl Marx. So it's like... And,
0: and, and, and has not traveled to any of these places. Right, exactly. So part of what we're kind of sticking right here, we're planting a flag on as odd as this story becomes, it's not really a story about is Aviva hoaxing this very that's right. early on, it becomes clear that something is going on. There is something coming through her that is exterior to her, or at least that almost becomes the only possible explanation at a certain point.
2: Yes. And I want to add, because it, it might not get touched on here in part one, it, it's more of a part two thing though, but before you send the emails about multiple personality disorder, that will come up and we will address that. But that's a down the road kind of thing. But that was a thought that I had while I was reading the book. And to your point, Rich, Joe, in writing the book, the question you have, the answer comes in the next couple of chapters every time, when you're if you're trying to approach it from a skeptical point of view. Now, but here's something else I want to say, which I think is fairly obvious about the story already, is that as an investigative journalist, Joe approaches, tries to approach these things from a skeptical point of view, but also he has written a book on reincarnation. He's clearly open-minded to this kind of stuff. But the other thing I think that he recognizes a little bit is that there's a little bit of confirmation bias that creeps into his own wheelhouse when he gets interested in Philippa. Right. And he knows that, but you see this struggle with him almost, an internal struggle in the book as he's writing, between him going, beautiful Greek girl, I, you know, seventeen hundreds, Calgon, take me away. But also like, now wait a minute, wait a minute. And there's a fair amount of him going, Now wait a minute, you got to prove X, Y, and Z. So that that exactly. battle goes on throughout the book, which is why the book is so compelling in my right. opinion.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Breeze from the band Fabric, and when I'm not slapping the bass, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So when Mark Ruffalo, oh, I'm sorry, Joe Fisher.
1: <laughs> That's your pick? That's your casting pick for Joe?
0: <laughs> I think he's Tekka Vale. Mm. So yes, he's getting drawn in. So Philippa begins to actually speak in her own voice and is so, so happy to see Joe again and sort of relive the moments of their romance. And the story she tells is that they were basically young adults living in a town called Theros in Greece. Now this is like in, I think, in the 1730s, I think. And they were in love, but they were having an illicit relationship. So whatever the cultural norms were of the time, it would not have been appropriate for these two to share their affection openly. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, right. So they would meet in secret and Philippa says, This happened all the time. I mean, there were a lot of girls and a lot of boys sneaking around. It was ever thus, right? But the problem was they got caught. And when that happened, the elders of the village intervened and basically separated them and did not allow them to be anywhere near each other, which was extremely emotionally, Horrible for both of them. I mean, these are young lovers. I mean, you don't, it doesn't take a lot to understand what this would be like in real life. And Joe is hearing this. And meanwhile, then he's going home to Rachel and things aren't going great. And he's like, oh my God, I had this hot relationship with this hot girl. So he does what any guy would do. He brings Rachel to the sessions. Yes. (laughs) Which I was like, wait, what? I'm like why would bring your girlfriend. That doesn't seem like to the me? best idea. But he was coming home to Rachel and going, "I'm going to these channeling sessions. There's this woman coming through," and Rachel's like, "What now?" But to be clear, she was what? open to the Ooh. idea of
2: of this kind of thing. She wasn't like a full blown
1: skeptic to it right out of the for, force hey, is like,
0: "Oh, she's spir- open to a third metaphysical
1: <laughs> freeway." Well, <laughs> well, okay, Rich. In in light of where this is going, uh, a couple of things here. One initial observation, and you, you'll you know full well what I'm talking about here, is that with abductees, this angle here, where they uh, will report having been abducted, been part of a alien-human hybrid breeding program, and that's a little hard to prove, but they come down to Earth, and it's like, oh, by the way, this other woman here, or this man, yeah, they're my space uh, <laughs> Date. other. Yeah, significant other. And then the the more grounded on Earth spouse or partner has to say like, okay, what do we do with that? I was like, well, that doesn't really affect our earthly relationship. I still love you. But yes, in outer space, we have had several babies that the aliens, and then that's something really hard for the grounded earthly spouse to have to deal with.
0: This is an incredibly astute observation. And in my personal copy of Siren Call of the Hungry Ghosts, I actually have notes that I'm like, you know, here and here and here, it relates to the UFO contactee or even abductee phenomenon in certain ways. And we'll see a little bit more of that as we go through, but yeah. And I love the social aspect of this. I love like, hey, it's Friday night. We've had a hard week. Let's grab dinner and a couple of drinks and then go up to Aviva's place and talk to the ghosts. (laughs) So Joe, trying to be a good guy and like, look, I've got to give this earthly relationship every chance brings Rachel to the condominium and now the two of them are watching Aviva go into her trance and he's waiting for Philippa to come through but instead of Philippa coming through we get William we get a dude (laughs) it's Rachel's guide oh (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're gonna, we're gonna... It's like, wait a second, now. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to be a good guy. Yeah. And now, suddenly, you got a ghost boyfriend. What is this? right now?
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. Before you go any further, the second part of my point here, which also sounds like it's it's going to steer to this, and it's different than the contact D scenario, because you know, if you watch the Stan Romanek documentary, uh, I think his name is his wife's name is Lisa, and and she tearfully describes how she had to had to deal with what Stan was telling her and, and whether to believe that or not. And she still loves Stan and it's a complicated relationship. Certainly a very complicated thing thrown into a seemingly stable relationship that they now have to deal with, but she was okay. I think able to handle that in that it wasn't Stan saying like, well, I have, and here's the buzzword here, soulmate in outer space or, or in another plane that uh, has been with me since uh, 20,000 years ago, however long it was. I'm being paired with somebody who is uh, picked by the aliens. So for whatever reason, they thought our biology was okay. And that's why we were part of this uh, breeding program. And I think maybe that's a little easier for the spouse to deal with when, as opposed to this other concept, which also comes up quite a bit now in new age thinking, metaphysical thinking and that's the idea of the soulmate that we all have this other soul out there that we are destined to be with and uh, who you're with you know on earth right now maybe you're having a good go at it you have your good times but it's not your soulmate waiting out there in the ethers for you.
0: Well, once again, you've kind of brought us to our next subject which is one of the weirdest aspects of this book. Russell and the other guides tell us that humanity is divided into two groups, souls and entities, and that we are all one or the other. And neither is better than the other, but entities are better than souls.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly right. (laughs) Hmm. Entities are created from the pool of knowledge, the great pool of knowledge, and souls are created from desire. But what's the catch? Souls have guides, but those guides are in a plane inaccessible to entities. So you're not going to go into one of these sessions if you're a soul and get in touch with your guide.
0: And some of these people who show up to Aviva's Friday night sessions are identified as souls. So guess what? They get to sit in the back and shut up while other people get to talk to their spirit guides. The entities get to talk to their spirit guides.
2: And Joe Fisher was talking about, he brought some venerated editor who was identified as a soul. And the guy was like, wait, I don't, I'm a soul. I don't have a guy. And he got, he, you know, he just left and never came back.
0: <laughs> Labeled. Right, no one wants to be a second class citizen, but apparently souls are second class citizens. And as we'll find out a little later, sometimes the spirit guides would tell the people in attendance, you're an entity, but your spouse is a soul. So if things aren't going so well, that's probably why. And suddenly, there's problems in relationships coming up. But as it turns out, Rachel, Joe Fisher's girlfriend, does have a spirit guide named William. And he comes through immediately. And (laughs) but the funny thing is, and he's Scottish, and he has a full personality. But Rachel gets a creepy negative feeling about the whole thing. She does not love it. It is not seducing her. And after a few sessions, she decides to stop going. But Joe is like, well, I'm still going to go and talk to Philippa. And Rachel's like, yeah, fine, you do that. But I, I don't like that scene. It makes me feel bad, which is really interesting because it sort of says, well, not everyone is getting seduced. Doesn't mean she didn't believe it. It just meant, you know, my spidey sense is going off. I'm not into it. I'm good. You enjoy yourself. Right. And
2: it's, there's a suggestion here that, and I've been overusing this word lately. I think even (laughs) offline talking with Forrest about our show with like, there's a recipe obviously, and the recipe isn't working. They have to match these guides and the the encounters need to match up to the person who's there. And it's not always a good fit. And so when it is a fit and it clicks and, you know, Joe is hooked, you know, hook line and sinker. I want to know more about this. And she's like, Okay, that's neat. Getting past the idea that we're talking to a uh, disembodied spirit that knows about me and what. Getting past all that, this dude is creeping me out. Right,
0: and I'm out of here. Right. Well, (laughs) Well, you know what? See, what I love about that is like that's a woman going. This guy's toxic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I want anything to do with this guy. Meanwhile, Joe, the dude, is like, "Ooh, this chick is really into me." And, and just to toss in a little more so you kind of understand all this, when Philippa finally speaks in her own voice, she tells Joe that he has lived 2,046 lives. So Ooh. he's been reincarnated 2,046 times since coming into being. Twenty-one thousand years ago, but most of those lives ended in infancy or as like a stillbirth. So that's why he was able to rack up those numbers.
1: That's a lot of work. Quickly though, to the last point, it sounds a lot like the stories you hear about couples who get into swinging, and that one of them, or you know, that you're or rock and roll, David Lee Roth, and that those things don't often work out. These open types of relationships and open uh, arrangements because someone in the group is more into it than the others. You rarely do find all parties equally enthused about uh, everyone else. And so somebody's going to be like, yeah, you can keep doing that, but uh, that's not my scene. Right. And then it goes uh, it deteriorates from there.
0: So Philippa explains to Joe. She says, "Okay, Joe, you and your current girlfriend Rachel, you have only shared three lifetimes." together and you were only minor acquaintances. But you and I, Joe, we have shared 17 lifetimes of intense emotional, sometimes sexual connection. So Joe's going, oh, so like in the great scheme of destiny, it's beginning to sound like Rachel is not the right person for me. And maybe you are the right person for me, except we're not in bodies at the same time. Philippa says, since our life together in Greece, you know, you have reincarnated three times. And then she says, the most recent incarnation was a man in Mozambique who was murdered by a sibling at the age of 37, which is weird and we never go back to, but okay.
2: Yeah, his Philippa, brother, I believe it was.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. but Philippa says, I have not reincarnated at all. So I've been living in, the, in this spirit place and you keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And we have yet to actually be on earth in physical bodies at the same time, wow, I'm getting a little hot myself. Just talking <laughs> <about it. laughs>
2: yeah, she uh, had departed the earthly plane at the age of 53, I think, in Greece, and had been floating up in the ether ever since then.
0: But he had died much earlier, right? Like he died in battle. Yes. So he, yeah, was, he was a young man who died in battle. So suffice to say that Joe Fisher is very upfront about saying, I was becoming obsessed with Philippa. And as problems continued with Rachel, I was actually much more happy to just think about Philippa. And Philippa told him, she's like, look, if you want to connect with me directly, you just got to think about me every morning. Just carve out some time every morning, same time, same place, and clear your mind. And sooner or later, I'll show up. Now, this is fascinating to me because this is advice you give to writers, to young writers. You tell them, look, There may be a muse, there may not be a muse that comes down and helps you write. But here's the thing, if you sit down every day at the same time in the same place and try to write and really apply yourself, pretty soon it'll start to happen. It's almost an act of self-hypnosis. Even if it's your subconscious, which of course with writing it is, your subconscious will begin to trust that you're allowing it to come out and play the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. The right side of the brain is shy and and it's all about imagination and art and frou-frou things. And and the controlling part of the brain has to make a special time to say, it's okay for you to come out and get on stage for a while. And so for a writer, it actually is very helpful. You'll hear this from writers all the time. They got to go to the same Starbucks. They got to sit in the same chair, the same time of the day. And if anything gets thrown off, Well, Philippa is saying, is what you got to do. If you want to talk to me, if you want me to appear to you and talk to you in your head, same time every day, same place, keep doing it. Sooner or later, I'll show up. So time and space makes a difference
1: in this timeless realm that she's in. She's saying you got to be at the same bat channel, same bat station every day to work in this habit and open this channel. But it has to be a, a time that is relevant to him, like in, in the mornings, maybe.
0: Exactly. It's what she is telling him, here's what you need to do. Like, I'm available all the time. But for you to get into it, you've got to get into a habit. Once you get into the habit, your mind will clear. Once your mind clears, then I can get in. But I also want to say,
2: and we just talked about this for us in
0: the Ouija series in the early
2: instructions of spiritualism, that's one of the first things they talk about, even with the Ouija board. Sit down, do it the same time. I made a joke about it just a few weeks ago. They wanted you to come back, same time, same place. Mm -hmm. I'll meet you here tomorrow at this time. This is triple interesting now, Rich, to hear you say that, and also in the context of writing, because I know, and you might not want to spill the beans, but you went to a little coffee shop to write Mothman, didn't you?
1: Yeah, that's not, not too ver- far from Romans. Yeah, uh, well, I wasn't gonna out his. Oh. I wasn't gonna. Well, he doesn't go. Location. He doesn't go there anymore. Are you kidding? Me? He's <laughs> way too famous for that.
0: Well, <laughs> he gets look, I you know, first of all, with COVID, I, I ain't going no. anywhere. But yeah, first of all, <laughs> the the coffee shop at Romans on Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena still exists. The stool yes. that I sat on at the counter that I sat at where I wrote Mothman prophecies still exists. Looking out that same window, so anyone who wants to make the pilgrimage can certainly do it. For me, it was very different. I had never, ever written in a public space. And to me, it was difficult. But for that project, and I really needed to get it written, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to go to this place. For some reason, being in public will make me feel more like I've really got to get the writing done, like I'll sort of be on stage a little bit. So I got into the habit of it. And it took—it didn't take that long. It took about a month for me to really sort of go, oh, I can just slip right into this. And I remember there was one point writing the Mothman Prophecy script where I was writing a scene and there was a couple next to me having an intense emotional conversation that I was consciously following as I was writing dialogue with two other people about a completely separate subject, and I'm like, right. okay, I have entered some weird mental state where <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like two things going on at once. But okay, I was that into it, so yeah.
1: Wow, a couple of points here, Scott. That just popped into into my mind something that Lynn Buchanan has said about remote viewing. It also can require a place that is um, special to you in a, in a certain way, in that. If you seem to operate in places that uh, have, are a little more chaotic, go to a cafe that you like every every time. Yeah, they encourage you to explore what works best for you and then stick to it. Right, right. If you if you need quiet, then do the reverse. Uh, switch things up. There is a specific methodology for what I was talking about uh, with what he was saying, though. But yes, that reminded me of cafe and that a public noisy space can get stuff going. As, you know, everybody thinks like, well, I have to go down to the, you know, uh, a rippling brook uh, and sit under a tree and get back to nature. It's like, it, it may not, but it seems to be the learned practice. But like what Scott was saying about the Ouija board, this same time, same channel is more for us, I guess, is what Rich is saying in this practice in that the spirits are always there, but we as humans need to... Open our portal. And we do that by practice and we do that by repetition and uh, repetitiveness and training our conscious to merge with our subconscious.
0: And that became a part of his daily life this sense that she is always with me. Like no matter what I'm doing, she's here. She can see me at every moment. And it turns into a thing where he would consult with her almost in his imagination. But then later on Friday night in person, he would say, So you remember on Thursday when I was at that place and I was like, should I do this or should I not? And I kind of got the feeling that you were like, yes, you should. And she would be like, yes, Joe, yes, I was with you in that moment and you were hearing me. And then he says, well, how will I know? So it's like, okay, good. So he's not so totally absorbed. He's like, how will I know? What sign can you physically give me so that I know you are in that moment with me? And she says, I, You will hear me in your ear. And from that moment on, at certain points, when he would either try to communicate with her sometimes, or at other times, randomly, he would get a buzzing in his ear that he had never experienced before. And sometimes it would happen when he was thinking of her, and sometimes it would surprise him. It would come out of nowhere. And he's like, Oh, she's with me and she's getting through. And so now it's getting a little more physical and a little more present in the moment. And now he's hooked. Two things I want to say about that, Rich. One
2: was I had a little section here that I wanted to read. It's on page 71 from Hungry Ghosts that Joe says, though at first I doubted our mind-to-mind communication proof that we were genuinely in touch was soon forthcoming. Philippa was able to confirm via Aviva's voice box messages that had been delivered in silence when no one else was around. On one occasion while cross-country running, a voice or implanted thought form made itself heard as I huffed and puffed up a steep hill. The idea that came to me was imagine that your feet are not touching the ground. Pretend instead that they are pushing off from midair just above the surface. Then both physically and psychologically, the climb will be much easier. So later he goes to a session, talks to Aviva, Philippa comes through. He doesn't lead the question to Aviva at all, and he says, Have you been speaking with me while I was out running? Yes. She replied evenly. I was telling you to imagine that your feet are placing one above the other in the air. There's more instances of this, and I just want to, it's easy for us to gloss over it as we sum up this story, but we want you to understand that there are these points here that go beyond just something that is in Joe's head in a lot of different cases, especially when it comes to details. The question that I have in all of these cases is, it's maybe more of a part two question, but it's like, where's the chicken and the egg in this scenario? And then the other thing about did he have that thought and then she accessed it or did she plant the thought? And that's the question I have there, but that, that'll be more important later. But in terms of the, also the physical contact, Rich, that's the other interesting thing about like this manifestation that reminded me, and, and maybe you can tell me this and I don't want to put you on the spot if you can't remember, but in the Mothman prophecies, when uh, when John Klein, Richard Gere is going around trying to get the phone call about what his wife, his dead wife or whatever was keel because i can't remember i read Keel's book a long time ago but was was he on a journey to try and achieve some kind of connection like that or was that a fabrication on your part or was that extrapolated from something he was doing too
0: john keel was not married yeah no i knew that but i just mean in terms of well john keel did a couple really cool things he was definitely trying he was testing the entities and he and he was doing it in several ways and one of the ways was and this is in the 1960s in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, but he would tell each witness who experienced anything, he would say, please, don't tell anyone else about this. Just tell me. Right.
2: I remember that now.
0: I'll be the clearinghouse, so I can write down what you experienced, then a week from now when somebody across the street experiences something, I can compare it, but I will know that you didn't just have a beer with them and tell them your story, and now I'm just getting the same story. So that was one thing, but the, one of the other interesting things he did, and this was later, and this is why you should all read the Mothman prophecies because it's an amazing. Book. I need to read it again. Yeah, but he yeah. he would say, he he began to think that you know as he was getting contacts, as he was picking up the phone and talking to uh, Mr. A. and and Indrid Cold, they would tell him things, and he began thinking, are they just telling me what I want to hear? And he did one of the most interesting things I've ever heard of. He would then make up a fake theory. So he'd go, okay, maybe what they really are is this. And he would sort of tell himself that that's what he believed. And then the next time they got in touch with him, that's what they would say.
2: Yes, that's what I was vaguely remembering. That's what I wanted to hear from you. So there's some definite common ground here in the nature of these interactions, possibly, possibly. We don't know in this scenario, but there's some common ground.
0: Well- What could be more convincing than that moment when the voice of the person says the thing that you were thinking that you've never told anyone? I mean, that's better than the person you're dating. That (laughs) is, you are literally in my head.
1: <laughs> well, is that such just, a good thing, though?
0: Well, at this point yeah. in the relationship, it seems like a great thing. It's like right. it's like the way you feel when you're 16. And it's like, oh my God, we're finishing each other's sentences. You know what I'm thinking before I even say it. Sure. We are one soul divided in two. Oh my God, let's get in my dad's car and make out. This is not, you don't have to go that far to understand how how Joe was feeling. So this is continuing in his life, and he's investigating, but he is also. Really trying to establish communication with this woman. Now, as all this is happening, he goes every Friday night and another spirit starts coming through really strong, who's not his spirit guide, but it's another guy named Ernest. You remember this, Scott?
2: Oh, yeah. Ernest is amazing. Ernest is a fascinating dude.
0: Ernest is what really kind of gets us to sort of the meat of what Joe starts to do. As it turns out, Ernest. Is really that sort of the name he's using? That's his handle, as it were. But he's really a man who lived named William Alfred Scott. That's who he was in life. And he was part of the 99 Squadron Group 3 Bomber Command. Now, by the way, I have no idea what that is. Aviva said it. It's a real thing. And it was something in World War II. So now Joe is like, okay, this is interesting. This is a real guy with three names who lived was part of a here's the great part he's part of a like a military squadron like you can check that you can there, there's records it's only world war two every event we're talking about right now was in the mid 80s now it's pre-internet so to check anything out Joe has to get into an airplane and fly to England he <laughs> can't just go online okay which in a way is fantastic because it it lends this entire story this level of credence that they didn't even know Existed when Joe was telling the story. Joe didn't know there was going to be an internet. He didn't realize how much more convincing this made his story to modern readers when it's like, well, this is not something Aviva could have just checked online. This is information held in a building somewhere in England about some squadron from World War II. The only way to find out is to go there. So Joe goes there. He's like, you know, I'm going to go to England. Here's a guy. I've got his name, I've got a lot of actual details about what he did in the war, and he talks about it in detail, about the airplane, the design of the airplane.
1: Hey, I'm Geku, and when I'm not going on a strange journey through the Schwartzfeld, I am listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
2: I want to read a couple of excerpts on what Ernest said, which I'm presuming that Joe recorded here, because some of it's even in quotes. Ernest joined the RAF in 1937 at the age of 20, and as a member of 99 Squadron, was based at RAF Mildenhall, Suffolk, from early 1939, moving to Newmarket Heath in September, that year just before the outbreak of war. Some 18 months later, he was transferred with the rest of the squadron to RAF Water Beach, an air base that was, quote, cut into the fins, the name given to that low-lying area of East Anglia. In Cames, a typically English abbreviation for Cambridge, sir, it was from Water Beach he said that most of his bombing missions were conducted. He spoke with great affection and enthusiasm about the aircraft he flew, the Wimpy, or Vickers-Wellington Bomber. And here's a, an actually a, a quote. Do you know what a Wimpy is? Well, a Wimpy had 1,000 horsepower Pegasus Motors. Wonderful. She was of geodetic design. She was the pride of our air command, as far as I was concerned anyway. Perhaps others would see the Lancaster Bombers being the f- – and Bombers uh, was added by Joe. Perhaps others would see the Lancaster as being the finest, but I would disagree. There's a lot of detailed stuff here, how big the bombs were, uh, the, uh, some uh, actually information that at the time would have been classified about these airplanes, or technically a secret. In February 1941, while he was based at Newmarket Heath, a bombing occurred on the Norwich Road, which took out, in quotes, the White Hart Hotel, one of the favorite establishments of our class, and the post office, killing a number of civilians. The attack, said Ernest, was the work of a German bomber, a Dornier DO-17 an amazing little creature that had the gall to fly. And you can just hear these personalities coming through. He mentioned that when he and his colleagues first moved to Newmarket Heath, it was quite uncomfortable for a while because they slept in the grandstands of the rally mile race course owing to an utter lack of accommodation in the
0: area. As a journalist, and he's recording this, so he's recording the voice of an accented human being speaking of these things, and now he's got all this literally, like specifically detailed information. He must've been doing mental backflips. He's like, this is what you want. When you're in a seance and you're talking to a ghost, you want them to give you their phone number, their social security <laughs> number, their bank account number, all this stuff that you just, you can check. if you It can yeah. all check. And so Joe is like, this is beautiful. Philippa Schmilipa, I'm in love with her. But this guy, I mean, this is not that long. It's the 1980s. This is, the 19, this is 40 years ago. So for us, this would be like us checking out something that happened in the 1980s. Yeah. I mean, it's right. weird, but I mean, it's like... Depressing. Yeah. Aerobicizing. Like, not
1: that long ago. <laughs> like if we wanted to study about
0: aerobicizing.
1: Right. Speaking of the early 90s, Scott gave us some homework. Well, he made a suggestion and I actually did it. Watched season six, episode one, the premiere episode of that of season six of Unsolved Mysteries. And one of the cases was what they call submarine. Bruce Kelly. Yes. Yeah. 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 Totally yeah. fascinating. And, and yeah, you, you think, you know, unsolved mysteries and, and it's like, uh, it, it's going to be something vague. Like, uh, well, I, I love to eat the ends off the crust of the bread. And so did this guy, according to his great, great aunt. And it's like, okay, that's not so much. This guy, Bruce Kelly, started having these symptoms, went to a hypnotherapist, wasn't really into past life regression, finds out that, uh, well, he starts getting names. He starts delivering real-life names that you have to go to the library to look up that aren't in the internet yet, and he finds the sub. And it was the shark, the USS Shark, which sank in early, I think in the South Pacific Seas.
2: Yeah, it was the the very first American sub. This is from an Unsolved website. Very first American
1: sub lost in the war, the USS Shark. Yeah. Unbelievable. And here's the thing, he's coming up with names unbeknownst to him and of guys that were actually serving on the sub and the guy that he knew the name of the guy that he was trapped with at the bulkhead uh, down below and they they both drowned and he'd always had a, a fear of uh, water, tight confined spaces, all these things are ringing true, but he's coming through with the names and uh, then he goes to meet the family because uh, James E. Johnston was the sailor who unfortunately drowned on the sub and he goes to find his family where the show takes him for the first time, uh, because I believe he's from uh, Oklahoma, and the family notices a lot of things that this guy is saying lines up.
2: Yeah, and he became convinced when he when he like met some of them that one of the older ladies was a little girl that he could remember. Yeah, when he from the past life, so that was real specific information. But in this case, you know, it it all tracked.
0: And for a guy who's just written a book about reincarnation, right? He's like, this is the kind of information you need. So he gets on a plane and he flies to England. This part's still just, no, getting to England from Toronto is not that big a deal. It's probably a five hour flight. It's like me flying to Atlanta. But in my mind, it's like, oh my God, he's like getting on the space shuttle. So flies to England and he's got all this information now because it's perfect. He can check it out. And he goes and he looks up all the stuff. And did 99 Squadron sleep in the grandstands because there was a lack of accommodation? Uh, yes, they did. And did they fly in the sort of airplanes with the big aluminum hoop around it? There was a device somehow for detecting underwater mines.
2: I read up on that thing. Yeah, he just because he described, I didn't read that section in the book, but he described a 48 foot hoop under the plane that would be parallel to the uh, ground, they would fly low over the water and it was uh, a device that would make the mines blow up. So make the water safe.
0: Never heard of this. Never seen a picture of this. Totally
2: exists. Until this book. It's in Joe's book. There's no way Aviva knew about it. You no. know that, yeah. So and it's sleeping in the grandstands, no way.
0: Sleeping in the grandstands, four thousand pound bombs. Yes, there were four thousand pound bombs. Oh, now he's holding. <laughs> for those of you, <laughs> yeah, I listening to, to the that. podcast. He's holding up a picture to my to my Zoom square, showing a picture. Oddly, that I have in my book and I've already seen, so I don't know why he's showing it to me. But <laughs> yeah, but your, uh,
1: we can tell, and there's well, the hoop on the bottom it of me. the plane. Yes. Forest, yes, see yes. This hoop. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Um. You know, it's all these it's all these small details and, and and the thing that you you can say to people or describe and they, they can't get it is the feelings that you're feeling the connective feelings uh that only have meaning for yourself and other people are you know they're not gonna they not gonna believe you but you know you know
0: now the amazing thing is so he finds some members of the same squadron who are now obviously very old and he plays the tape that he made in the condo in Toronto of Aviva, talking as Ernest, okay, who is actually William Alfred Scott. But anyway, he starts playing this, and he's like, "Does this sound like a person who actually was part of what you did?" And these guys, and Scott, maybe you've got actual, the quotes, but they're like, "Yeah, yeah this guy. Yep, he's got it. <laughs> this this is a guy. Who's this guy? This guy this sounds like he knows."
2: Norman did well. He served with the 99 Squadron as ground crew from 39 to 41. This is on page 126 of Hungry Ghost. Did did we tell you this book was amazing, folks? All right, <laughs> listen, to, this is what Norman said. After listening to to Aviva talking about Ernest being Scott, this is what Didwell said. Well, he was there. He must have been there. It's it's very convincing. Who would have known about us sleeping in the grandstands? You'd only know that and several other things mentioned here if you'd been in the squadron.
0: Right. So this is amazing confirmation, except for one, one thing, one weird thing. There is no William Alfred Scott.
2: Dildwell knew of no Flying Officer Scott. He found the voice very, very familiar, saying it sounded like Scotty he once knew, Sergeant Malcolm Scott. Another 99 Squadron veteran, Jim Ginger Ware, W-A-R-E, a rear gunner who flew with Sergeant Malcolm Scott on at least four missions, agreed. Ware, whose left leg was amputated after he crash-landed in the North African desert on August 7th, 1942, flew on 58 missions before being captured by the Germans. Listening to Ernest's voice at his retirement home in Barking, near London, he shook his head in wonder and disbelief. That's right, that's right, he muttered to himself, shivering with the eerie familiarity of it all. There's a lot that's strikingly true, and it sounds quite like Scotty. He spoke quick like that. He was a Billy Bunter type. He could always make short work of a plate of egg and beans. Scott, he wasn't very pretty. He had like a rubber face. When he had his flying clothes on, he was huge. He was a wealthy bloke. He never seemed to have a lot of worries. I think his only worry was that he wasn't commissioned. But his name
0: <laughs> yeah. was not William Alfred Scott. It wasn't. It was Sergeant Malcolm Scott. Malcolm Scott. So Joe goes and he's like, well, this is easy enough to check. So he goes and he, there are records kept of all of the stuff. And he looks through every year. The squadron, adjacent squadrons, there is no sign of anyone who has ever been named William Alfred Scott. Well, Rich, what are we to make of all this then,
1: when a lot of details are spot on, but maybe maybe the most important one is not accurate? What's going on here?
0: Well, that's the perfect question, because if... Some people are listening to this and thinking, "Well, somehow this is all a hoax." Aviva had a contact in England, researched all this information, told her about the airplane with the hoop on it, and the, the squadron uh, of people sleeping in the grandstands of the place, and all that stuff.
2: In between her lessons in Greek and Turkish,
0: <laughs> in between, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. But okay, right. you yeah. know, I mean, you yeah. know, <laughs> fine. Like, give, give the the debunker their due. Why not just select a name that actually exists? Like, why? If you did the research, if you were gonna fake it, why do 99% of it and leave out the one most important thing? Why not just do that thing? It's not like the person's dead. You could easily wrap this up. Well, that's not what happened. All the details matched, but the name didn't. And for Joe, that was important. And he really felt this weird sense of personal betrayal. Now you got a picture, this is a guy walking around London. Everyone's back home in Toronto. He gets on the airplane. He has to wait till the next Friday. And then he shows up in that same condo where Aviva is at the session and waits for Ernest the ghost to come through and then confronts Ernest and says, I just flew to England. There is no William Alfred Scott. Well, what he discovers is that Ernest, while he's been gone, has already started backpedaling. All the sessions that he has missed, Ernest has been coming through going, well, you know, it's very difficult to remember certain things. And, um, <laughs> you, never, you know, you guys live on the physical plane, but I don't remember things like names and dates. And, and this is all not necessary. This is all about your advancement as souls and entities and your forward development on your whole astral journey. This has all been going on while he's been gone, anticipating that he would come back to say, you don't seem to exist in the way you're claiming <laughs> to exist. Oh Well, hold on one second
1: here. You think Ernest knew that that was going to be the answer? It's, it's like, oh, God, this guy's going to come back from England, and I, I'm going to be wrong, and I, I, I better start patching this over now.
0: Suddenly, it's an episode of Three's Company. Right. <laughs> Clearly, yeah, the, I mean, this is the weirdest thing. It's like, wait a second. This is turning into some like weird you know, high school backstage drama. Were you at the party last night with so-and-so? And everyone's trying <laughs> to make... Anyway, Ernest yeah. has already been preparing the group for Joe coming back and going, wait a second. Things aren't actually lining up. Now, Ernest, confronted by Joe, takes on a very different tone, almost one of panic.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Joe's getting started agitated here. This is actually from page 132 of Hungry Ghosts. William Alfred Scott, Ernest, then revealed, it's not in fact a wrong name. It's not a complete name. Joe says, I was infuriated by this admission and almost shouted at Aviva's quiescent figure. Come on, Ernest, be straight with me, can't you? Obviously, you're hiding something from me and well, actually, I'm not hiding as you would call it, hiding. I'm protecting my charge and my other charges. Now, charges are, when, are the guides. Those are the people on earth that the guides are supposed to protect. And they're guiding many people. I don't think we pointed that out. It's not just one. They're guides for lots and lots of people. So
0: well, they're doing Thursday nights, some Tuesday yeah, nights.
2: <laughs> yeah. And Ernest is invoking attorney-client privilege, so, or angel-guide privilege. <laughs> Got it. So your surname wasn't Scott? My surname was Scott, Ernest replied. Then why were you not in the operations logbook? I was in the logbook. Yet when I repeated the question a little later, he replied, Because originally I was flying as a teacher. I was not on flight crew. I was sending them up. Why then, I persisted, was neither your birth certificate nor death certificate registered? Oh, my birth and death certificate would have been registered, but they would be under my full Christian name, I would presume. I see. So I was misled, which is a shame because your case was very evidential. And Russell told me that the guides would help me all they could. We've tried to help you all we could. In fact, I gave you all the information you needed. You could have tracked me down, and I'm rather glad you did not because I did not want to imperil my charge in any way whatsoever. As you have guided before, I would ask you to reach back and think, what is your priority? When you are guiding, what is your priority? So Ernest is <laughs> turning it around, wow. turning the tables on
0: him. So he turns, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, well, what what are you lying about? You know, yeah. what's, what, what's your real agenda here? And ultimately, Ernest starts, you know, know, backpedaling and backpedaling and backpedaling and finally gets to a point where he's like, okay, look, here's the deal. I'm about to reincarnate. I'm going to be born into a new body and it's going to happen in, you know, a month. So they talk a lot about karmic debt. And it's like, if you make too close a connection of who I really was, then it imperils my soul's journey forward. Okay, which sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, because it is. And Joe Fisher is like, what are you talking about? Just give me your name. How could that imperil anything? But there was a lot of talk about if anyone could have possibly been injured by connecting me with that person and the things that I did, which I'm not proud of, it could have serious ramifications. So Joe was like, okay, I guess, I don't know. Okay, now what is this about reincarnation? And Ernest says, okay, here's the deal. I've started going through the process and I'm going to be born. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have to leave you. And sure enough, three sessions later, Ernest bids goodbye because he is now going to be born onto our earth in current time, right, Scott? That's right. He He's going off to be born and he wouldn't be around anymore
2: shortly after he misled Joe.
0: So Joe figures, okay, well, this is just more grist for my mill and information for my book. And he's already told the guides, I'm writing a book. I'm gonna record all of this. So you guys know this. So Russell, who's sort of the master of ceremonies of all of the guides says, well, that's great. And Joe says, can you give me some information about this baby that's about to be born? And Russell's like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I'll try. I know a guy. I'll pull in a few favors. Come out to the coast. We'll have a few laughs." laughs. He's turned into Bruce Willis. But it's like, okay, now here's the weird part. Month goes by, another month. Russell comes through and says, I got the information. I got the
2: information. As the weeks went by, this page 139, I kept asking Russell whether there was any news. Week after week, he replied in the negative. Then towards the end of July, Russell announced that he had received notice of Ernest's re-entry into the material world. His birth had taken place, he said, on 13 July. His name was Thomas Hugh Graham. His birthplace was the county of Kent in southern England, and his parents' Christian names were Hugh and Susan. So Joe writes this down. Decides to go and track it down. He, he starts looking around, and uh, he – so the births for 1985 – again, this is not the internet. <laughs> yeah. It's just like uh, the births for 1985, yet to be properly bound, were contained within four plump quarterly binders, each identified by the last month of the quarter. I pulled out the September 1985 file and rifled through its pages in search of Graham Thomas Hugh. I was hoping to pinpoint the entry with the birth date, but no dates were given, et cetera, et cetera. He goes on and and he's finding, he's he's scrolling through and he's finding Thomas Alexander Graham, Thomas David Graham, and then he sees it, Thomas Hugh Graham, except he had not been born in Kent. He had, uh, as the guide said, there was no way of knowing immediately whether he was born on July 13th, so to find out, he had to fill out an application for a full birth certificate, which he did. Several weeks later, sometime after I'd returned to Toronto, the certificate I ordered arrived in the mail. Anxiously, I opened the envelope, scanned its contents to my great relief and satisfaction. The pink ink-scrawled certificate was inscribed, almost the way I had dared to expect. Thomas Hugh Graham, born July 13th, 1985, parents Hugh and Susan Graham, birthplace, Aldershot, Hampshire. It was all just as Russell had said, with one exception. The birthplace was located in Aldershot,
0: Hampshire, rather than Kent, which lay 35 miles away. All right, so he's got, I mean, this is the, the most incredibly accurate thing that has happened so far. The date, the name, the parent's name, it actually happened. And somehow this ghost knew of this child being born. So what do you think Joe does? He decides to get in touch with the parents. <laughs> now imagine being That's
2: now just, I just want to say here and this is a family show, although you wouldn't know it from your guesting on it tonight. No. I, <laughs> Jeez. Joe has some cojones. That is just, I think to go up there and be like, knock, 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 guess what? I you just had a kid, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> people
0: have just had, had a This kid's child. an old man. <laughs> he calls them up and he says, hi, let me explain who I am. My name is Joe Fisher. I've written a book called The Case for Reincarnation. Okay, this is gonna sound crazy. But I was given information by a discarnate entity. (laughs) Can I come in? (laughs) By by now you're hanging up. You just had a baby. You're (laughs) hanging up the phone. Gave me the name of your child, predicted the name, your names, the date of birth. It all checks out. I think the baby that is in your house right now, I think I know who he used to be. Would you like to talk to me? And the woman says, you need to talk to my husband. (laughs) She hands the phone over. The husband comes in. Yes, what's going on? He explains to the husband, I picture the husband as John Cleese. I don't know why. I'm just, I'm just in my <laughs> From mind. A Fish Called
2: Wanda. Maybe. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's, it's <laughs> England, so I'm going with Cleese. And the wife is Michael Palin in a dress. Mm, yes, perfect. Mm. Oh, all right then. <laughs> so the, the guy gets on and he's like, let me talk about it with my wife. I'll call you back. And then he does. Couple of weeks later, he calls back and he says, "Look, you know what? I'm not saying you, this isn't true. I'm not saying this didn't happen. But we talked about it. It's fascinating. I get that you're interested. I just can't see how this is going to help my newborn baby. So you know what? We're going to take a pass. We're going to take a hard pass on this. You know what? What more can you expect?" And Joe's yeah. like, "I get it. Thank you very much. I'm out of your life." And he leaves it, and that's where that part of the story ends. But I would say that at this point, Joe is riding pretty high because this is the most evidential confirmation he's gotten. Right around this time, he goes to a party and he runs into a guy. And the guy is a guy named Sanford Ellison. And he barely recognizes him because he looks terrible. He looks sick and drained of his vitality. But he's at the party and he's like, Sanford and Sanford goes Joe and they realize they know each other from the Friday sessions but Sanford has quit these sessions months ago and Joe hasn't seen him and Joe's in the process of leaving the party and Sanford looks at him like someone looking across the acres of hell and he says listen Joe I know you're leaving but anytime you're ready to hear about the other side of the guides." I'll be glad to tell you all I know. And with this cryptic warning, echoing in his ears, Joe leaves. And this is something that will come back to haunt Joe in the future.
2: That's going to wrap up tonight's show. A very special thanks to our good friend Richard Haddam. We'll be
1: back next week with part two of this series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm GQ. Hi, I'm Dave Breeze, and I give permission to astonishing legends.
0: I'm the Gunslinger. S-L-U-G-J-I-N-I. Present or future compensation.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah
1: Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can
2: also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends Astonishing Legends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>